Not long after I became a Christian, aged around 17, I started dating someone from church. And because her family went to church as well, I got to know her family also really, really well. It was a culture shock in lots of ways. Uh, my family ha rarely had people around uh, for meals at home. Uh, mostly just family, and even that was pretty rare. But there always seemed to be room for one more at the table in the Ford household. Not even my mum was allowed to drive my father's Saab. She just had to stick to her rickety old Mini. But I saw the Ford household lend their car more than once to other families. Yes, it was only a clapped out Cortina, but they allowed other families to borrow it and went without a car at times for days on end. I remember the shock I felt realizing that four, I think it was, households from the church shared a lawnmower. None of them had gardens large enough to justify having one, they thought, so they shared something that my family would never have done. Truthfully, everything in their house, everything they owned pretty much had seen better days. Uh, their furniture, perhaps even better decades. Yet there was never a sense of lack, never a sense of there not being enough, particularly of time, particularly of warmth. It was the warmest, most hospitable household that I had ever experienced until that point. <laughs> I was taken aback so many times. They shared when, frankly, we didn't. They welcomed when, frankly, we didn't. They had time for others whenever they arrived, whether they were expected or not, and honestly, we didn't. They were generous, even though they didn't have masses. Well, we had masses, but we weren't. We didn't. I was seeing Christian faith getting expressed and worked out in lots and lots of very practical, loving ways. And it shocked me over and over again. It was a profound clash. Clash between the culture of the family in which I'd grown up, which I would have said was a loving home, and the culture of a family that had taken its faith and the love of God seriously, <clears throat> taken it seriously and lived it out. I was amazed, and I learned a lot that I've tried to put into practice over the years. Why do I mention this? <clears throat> because our passage, which is a difficult one when you really dig into it, is also talking about a clash of values it's a clash between the flesh. A clash between the flesh, our natural, unredeemed, broken humanity, and the Spirit of God. Paul here wants us to understand. Understand just what's at stake in the clash of values. And how we need to live if we want to live faithfully. Sorry, my wife has gone to get me a glass of water and I've just, um, it, I, it was here. Sorry, sorry, love. <clears throat> so clash of values. First point, first point from Romans 8, 5 to 8. 
why God wants what he wants. Why God wants what he wants from us. I wonder sometimes if you're tempted to think that God's will is a bit arbitrary. That God's just a bit grumpy and likes simply to boss people around. It's the whole idea of sin, just an expression of divine pettiness and grumpiness. Just a way of someone in power enforcing their will on others. Why does God want what he wants for us and from us? Paul's answer is given in verse 6. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. In other words, those who follow God's purpose, those who live in the power of the Spirit, will find life and peace. They will discover what's truly good for them. As Romans 12, put, uh, 2 puts it, when our minds have been transformed by the Holy Spirit, we will be able to test and approve what God's will is. That is, we'll be able to discern God's purpose and to know that it is good. Test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Why does God want what he wants, wants for us and from us? Simply because that's the way that we find life and peace. That's the way that we find the choices that are good, pleasing, and perfect for us. God desires for us and from us those decisions, those actions that are really good that are genuinely in our best interests, that are those which bring us life and peace. And of course, those that bring others through us life and peace and goodness as well. When we step out for the Lord, when we follow his prompting, when we stand on his promises, then others receive those things as well through us. In, in identifying certain things as sin, God is not being grumpy, arbitrary, or petty. He's identifying those things which bring brokenness and harm into our lives. Those things which damage us, damage those around us. Those things which distance us from one another and distance us from God. For example, remember that sex is God's gift. It was created to be a blessing created to be at the heart of relationships and families. Remember, it's a powerful gift, that it's like a fire. In the grate of a house, a fire can warm not just the people, but the whole of the building, continuing to warm it long after it's gone out. But out of the grate, out of context, out of hand, fire can destroy the building and everything in it. It's a great thing. It's a powerful and delightful gift in the right context and in the right degree. Why does God want what he wants for us and from us? Simply because those things he wants are life and peace for us. He wants the best for us. That's why God wants what he wants for us and from us. Second, why does the flesh want what it wants? Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. The word translated flesh is a tricky one to translate. Uh, it's used in lots of different ways in the New Testament. Uh, one dictionary I have 
suggested it's used in six different ways. The other one suggested it's used in eight different ways. Now, that makes translation quite tricky. But its most basic meaning is the soft substance of our bodies, though sometimes it's used for the whole of the body, the body in contrast to the spiritual aspects of humanity. So it's about our material substance. It's also used to describe living creatures as those which have flesh and those which are able to pass it on through procreation. But the third meaning I think is key here. It's that part of us being able to feel sensation. As those who have senses, uh, that's a neutral meaning, as those who have senses, a further meaning is our desire to be stimulated. Our desire to feel sensual pleasure of all kinds, whether from donuts through to sex, whether it's just for rest through to chocolate. All of these are sensual desires for pleasure. And some of them are wrong. Wrong either in degree, because they've become too important, they've become dominant, or wrong in character or context, like the fire out of the grate. That what we desire is in itself wrong or is desired in the wrong place. All of those meanings are in play whenever we read the word flesh. So what does it mean here in this passage? Well, I think the third meaning is uppermost. It is our ability to feel sensation and our ability, therefore, sometimes wrongly to come to crave sensation and pleasure. So why does the flesh want what it wants what it wants? Simply because it recognizes nothing beyond the physical. Sensation is king. The pursuit of sensation, the fulfillment of desire is the be-all and end-all for the flesh. As verse 5 puts it, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. So if you have an appetite, the flesh says, feed it. If you have a desire, the flesh says, satisfy it. If you want more, the flesh says, well, get more. These are the rules for a mind focused on what the flesh requires. Why does this matter? Are not our desires part of how we're created to be? Well, yes and no. As I said, sometimes they're wrong in degree, is when we become addicted to certain pleasures. Um, I was watching, or we were watching this week, a really harrowing documentary following the life of Paul Merson. He's a very famous footballer. He's also very famously addicted to various things, including gambling. He has gambled seven million pounds away in his life. I'm sure it'll be on our iPlayer if you want to look at it. But it's a story of how addiction takes hold. So sometimes they're wrong in degree. And sometimes they're wrong in context or in character. But how does this happen? How do things get out of shape like this? Well, it's simply the effect of sin upon our humanity. How does that happen? Well, we're all raised in families and in cultures that are broken in one way or another. And we pass that brokenness on. I've met abusers who were themselves abused. I've met people who've become addicted to pornography heard about the impact that's had on their ability to have normal sex lives. There's some evidence 
that the prevalence of pornography is now impacting sexual behaviour among teens and young adults. Reports suggest it's encouraging violence and risky behaviours. Worse still, it seems that consent has become harder to refuse. As an example, I'd like to point you to the Everyone's Invited website. It was set up in June last year to allow young people from private schools to post testimony about the sexual abuse they were facing at school. From June last year to the end of March this year, no fewer than 5,800 stories detailing abuse, harassment and assault had been posted. As I said, yes and no. We've been created with these desires and in the right context, they are really powerful and good, like the fire in the grate. But when they're pursued in a way that's out of context or out of degree, then they become wrong. Not just wrong, but also destructive. Why does the flesh want what it wants? Because it recognizes nothing beyond the physical and nothing beyond the now. Third point, recognizing God's authority. We struggle with authority today, perhaps more than we ever have. And honestly, that's a fair response when we look at the world we are experiencing. Leaders, whether inside the church or in politics, have shown us we are right to be, right to be skeptical. Whether it was Donald Trump's supporters storming the Capitol bill in Washington, or Matt Hancock, unable to practice social distancing in his own office. The whole notion of authority is understandably under question. And the response for many is to, to dispute the whole idea of authority, even to see the suggestion as oppressive. Paul recognizes this in verse seven. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, hostile. It does not submit to God's law, God's authority, nor can it do so. Hostile means hatred, opposition. The one driven by the flesh hates and refuses God's authority. It will never submit to God's right to rule, never become subject to God's kingship, never accept God's authority. It will always resist. Even if a desire is wrong because it's out of degree, even if a desire is wrong because it's out of context or out of character, the flesh will never accept that. I think we see this in our culture. We prize individualism and freedom above everything. And where we see the insistence that the way I see the world is, is my truth, my truth with which no one is allowed to argue but we need to take a step back. We need to remember that God has created everything, including us. We need to remember that we see countless expressions of his creative wisdom every single moment of every single day. We need to remember that God wants what he wants because it is for our good, as he, the wise creator, designed and desires it. We need to remember that what God asks of us and for us is what he deems to be in keeping with the way that we are made, 
the way the world, the universe works. That is to live in rhythm with creation, to live according to how we are shaped. We have to put ourselves in God's hands and accept that he is trustworthy, accept that what he has has for us, what he desires for us is good. We have to accept that all definitions of that which is good have to be rooted in his creative and redemptive purpose. Yes, we share in his image. Yes, we share in his creativity, but no, we can't choose to decide what's good for ourselves. As Romans 12, 2 reminds us, the world wants to squeeze us into its mold. That means we don't always truly know what's actually good, pleasing and perfect, even for ourselves. That's why we need revelation. That's why we need the scriptures. As our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer, God has every right to ask us to live in accordance with what he deems to be good and to ask us to remember that what he asks of us is genuinely life and peace for us. Whereas to choose to live against that, to choose to refuse his authority, that, verse 6 suggests, is to choose death and brokenness and destruction. It's to choose a life which, verse 8, will never please God. We have to recognize God's authority, God's right to rule. <clears throat> so what does all this mean for us today? I wonder first, what voices speak loudest in your mind and your heart? <clears throat> Romans 12, 2, remember, can be trans translated, don't let the world squeeze you into, your, into its mold. What voices speak loudest to you? What voices do you need to tune out, maybe, if you're going to hear the Spirit more clearly? In the family I described at the beginning, I, did, I experienced a clash of values. Their contentment challenged the materialism I'd learned. Their hospitality and generosity challenged my self-centeredness, my hardness of heart. Their kindness, making space for people whenever and wherever they turned up, challenged the sense that I had learned that people can be a pain and don't really matter. And I saw trust in God being lived out. It challenged the loud voices from my family, challenged them and allowed me to see a different way. What are the loudest voices in your mind and your heart? Where do they come from? How do they come to you? Where are you experiencing a clash of values? And to what kingdom values Values like hospitality and generosity and contentment. To what kingdom values is your father calling you right now? I wonder, second, where do we need to recognize God's authority? Remember, God wants for us, what he wants for us represents life and peace, Paul tells us here. Romans 12, 2 says it will be shown to be good, pleasing, and perfect if we put it to the test. No one else has the right to direct us. No one else has the wisdom to see what's truly best for us. 
We have to recognize and trust God's authority. We have to recognize it and live to please him, not ourselves. Trusting that in living to please him, we will please ourselves. I wonder in what areas do we need to recognize and submit to God's authority? In what areas have we been ignoring God's purpose? And I wonder third, are there areas where the flesh has got the better of you? Where the flesh has got the better of you? Very many of us, probably nearly all of us, have been touched or scarred by this in one way or another. Maybe you've t- you're touched by pornography and struggling to get out of its grasp. Maybe when I was talking about the website Everyone's Invited, that brought back difficult memories. If they did, speak to someone about them. It could be through the church, but on the backs of the loo doors are contact details of groups with expertise for all kinds of stuff that you may have experienced. Uh, Speak to someone about them. It doesn't have to be here. The details are in the loos. Maybe you're just struggling to get the fire back into the gate. Great. Or maybe it's other desires, I don't know, for food or for drink or transcendence that you recognize are getting out of hand. Romans 8 begins by promising that there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus. And by promising us that the law of the spirit of life can set us free from the law of sin and death. I always remember when I'm thinking about this kind of stuff, how matter-of-fact Jesus was when he was dealing with the woman taken in adultery, how affirming and gentle he was with the woman at the well, despite her pretty extraordinary past. Jesus is not shocked by this. He is perfectly confident and capable to deal with it. And the risen Jesus is present with us by his Spirit, And the power of the cross is always available. So don't think for a moment that his arm is too short to save you. If the flesh has got the better of you or risks getting the better of you, the risen Jesus is here, here willing and able to set you free. This is a hard passage. It confronts us. I confess every time I've preached on Romans 8, I've normally preached Romans 8, 1 to 11. I've been able to skate over this passage. It's a hard passage. And yet there is so much hope within it because the spirit of life is with us. The spirit of life will direct our steps. The spirit of life by the power of the cross will deliver us from whatever is holding us fast. So let's take our stand on that. Let's trust the presence and power of the spirit of life to lead us to a place where we'll discover life and health and peace.